0: Hello and welcome to Alice is Everywhere, the world's, nay the universe's only, Alice in Wonderland and Lewis Carroll podcast. My name is Heather, and this week the emphasis is going to be on Lewis Carroll. We are going to talk some more about his letters, specifically letters that he wrote to his illustrators. We talked a little about Elsie's letters before, particularly about his eight or nine wise words about letter writing three or four episodes back. I thought I should have some more whimsical episodes in between the letter-centric ones, but no, I'm not so sure that was the right decision. Our last episode that was entirely devoted to my favorite character, March Hare, got, I think, the smallest response ever from the Alice's Everywhere audience. Just nothing. Maybe I'm the only March Hare fan in the world. Maybe everyone stopped listening after the first letter writing episode. Heck! It's useless to speculate, really. I can look at analytics, but I can't see into the minds and hearts of you, my partially loyal listeners. (laughs) So what the heck, it's back to letters today some of which I think are simply hilarious, hopefully you will agree. Many of Lewis Carroll's letters have been published. That is, in fact, how I have come across them. I have not been rummaging around in the Carroll family basement. If you are so delighted after hearing this episode that you would like to read some more of Lewis Carroll's letters yourself, you have several books to choose from. I've mentioned before The Life and Letters of Lewis Carroll, which was published by L.C.'s nephew, Stuart Dodson Collingwood, in 1898, pretty much immediately after Lewis Carroll's death, practically before he was in the ground. Stu obviously picked and choosed which letters of his uncle he was willing to share. He was definitely trying to paint a certain picture of his revered family member, and what I'm trying to say is he left a lot of stuff out. The next collection to be published is really interesting. It is called Letters of Lewis Carroll to His Child Friends. It was published in 1933, and it was edited by one of those former child friends, Evelyn Hatch. She would have been in her 60s when the book was published. Now, I don't know if you guys really do ever do more research, a little more digging on your own after you hear something on this podcast. Just in case, I will warn you, if you Google Miss Evelyn Hatch, the first thing you're going to see are photos Lewis Carroll took of her when she was a child. Sans Habil? I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but what I mean is naked. You'll see naked photos Lewis Carroll took of her when she was very young, with her mother's approval, I should note, that's that's important to note, and one of the photos is very artsy and pretty and demure, and the other one is more like, oh, boy, I wish I didn't say that. Obviously, Evelyn herself didn't worry too much about these photos. She was not scarred for life since she worked on a book decades later, many decades later, of Lewis Carroll's Letters to Children. I think my favorite quote from that book is in a letter to a little girl named Maggie. He wrote, My best love to yourself... To your mother, my kindest regards. To your small, fat, impertinent, ignorant brother, my hatred. So, Letters of Lewis Carroll to His Child Friends was published in 1933. Then we have a big gap, and in 1979, two volumes of The Letters of Lewis Carroll were published, edited by Morton Cohen and Roger Lancelin Green, both esteemed Carroll scholars I'll be honest, I'm not exactly sure if there are letters in this compilation that you can't read elsewhere in the earlier volumes, or if they are reruns, but maybe with more backstory. If it's not painfully obvious yet, I have not actually read that 1979 book. Morton Cohen also worked on a book, along with Edward Wakeling, published in 2003, entitled Lewis Carroll and His Illustrators, which is almost entirely letters back and forth between Lewis Carroll and the aforementioned illustrators. And let me tell you, if you are ever having trouble falling asleep, is this the book for you? I realize that sounds harsh. It's not the fault of the authors slash editors. Cohen and Wakeling do a great job giving some background and explaining the relationship Lewis Carroll had with each featured illustrator. But when you get to the letters, oh my goodness, I'm usually out in about five minutes. Now, aside from there being all kinds of minutiae back and forth about pictures you're not actually looking at, sometimes it's not back and forth. Sometimes the conversation is totally one-sided, because guess what? Not everybody keeps meticulous records of every single letter they've ever written or received, like Lewis Carroll did. So often you're reading a lot more responses from illustrators, because Lewis Carroll kept them. And a lot fewer of Lewis Carroll's letters to illustrators survive which is too bad since he's such an entertaining writer. His correspondence with John Tenniel in particular is quite underrepresented. Maybe Tenniel just wadded up each letter from Lewis Carroll immediately and tossed it in the waste paper basket. We'll never know. A primer on Lewis Carroll and his illustrators. We've got John Tenniel, of course, who was a very well-known political cartoonist before he illustrated both Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass and what Alice found there. His is the work we are most familiar with, as the Alice books are by far the most well-known of Lewis Carroll's writing. You'll recall the Alice books were published in 1865 and 1871. Later, in 1878, L.C. approached Arthur Burdett Frost to illustrate some collections of poetry, the most well-known being Phantasmagoria and other poems. Arthur Burdett Frost had done some work for Mark Twain and Charles Dickens, and he obviously caught Lewis Carroll's eye. Next comes Harry Furness. That's spelled F-U-R-N-I-S-S, and man, oh man, is that when the book gets fun. I don't know how much we've talked about this, but Lewis Carroll was rather particular with his illustrators. As this book shows, he would go back and forth with them regarding very small details. One might call it micromanaging, except that phrase isn't often used when art is involved. Reading these persnickety letters brought to mind a documentary I saw on Bruce Springsteen in the making of the Born to Run album. And this documentary described Bruce being in a room with Clarence Clemens for just hours and hours going over the solo to... Must have been Jungle Land, I would think. I'll admit I'm I'm doing this from memory, so I could be wrong about the song. But he spent, like, 17 hours in a room with poor Clarence, basically interrupting him every few seconds and saying, you know, no, 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 hi, or or, no, you know, like, and it just sounded like pure, unadulterated H.E. Double Hockey Sticks from Clarence's perspective. Now, Lewis Carroll isn't that bad, but this is all by letters. Maybe he would have been that bad if he were in a room with his illustrators. So Lewis Carroll had, at the time and now in retrospect, a reputation for being a little difficult to work with. Now, so did Harry Furness. In fact, he appears to really bring the crazy sometimes. What's odd about this section of the book, Lewis Carroll and his illustrators, is that the letters are almost all from Lewis Carroll to Harry Furness. I don't think we get any from Furness to Lewis Carroll, just a few descriptions of how he responded. Now, the authors are definitely in the Lewis Carroll camp. They think Harry Furness was kind of a nut job. So I don't know if they're leaving out normal sounding letters that would not support their Lewis Carroll saying Harry Furness crazy hypothesis. It's impossible to say. I'm going to read you one of my favorite letters from Lewis Carroll to Furness. But first, a little background. Furness was a younger fellow who actually worked with Tenniel at a publication called Punch. Lewis Carroll approached Furness to illustrate Sylvie and Bruno. He approached him in 1885, before he was anywhere near done writing the book. After Furness agreed to illustrate for him, Furness would understandably ask, So, what's what's this book about? Or try to get some overall idea of the book as a cohesive whole, and Lewis Carroll either had no idea or didn't feel like telling him, which annoyed Furness to the point that he claimed that Lewis Carroll would cut sentences out of his manuscript, shake them up in a bag, then pull them out, and paste them in whatever order they came, so as to keep Furness in the dark. I have no idea if that's true or not. The authors of Lewis Carroll and his illustrators do not think it is true. But I do know that that's hilarious. The letter I'm going to read is L.C. responding to some illustrations that Furness had just sent to him. So you'll hear a number, and then a title of each picture, and then his thoughts on each When you hear the titles of these pictures, you're going to say, Heather, what goes on in this book? And my answer is, I don't know. It has never made any sense to me whatsoever. I know Sylvie and Bruno are children who go in between the real world and the fairy world, and maybe there's another third world. I, I don't know. But please, do enjoy. From September 21st, 1889, a letter from eccentric author and mathematician Lewis Carroll to an even more eccentric illustrator, Harry Furness. Dear Mr. Furness, Many thanks for the pictures. Number one. Sylvie and dead hair. Quite charming. This, I think, will be the chef d'oeuvre of your pictures done for me. At least you'll find it very hard to beat. Number two. Toddles. It was most kind of you, after I had abandoned my objections to printing this and the beetle picture, still to insist on retouching them, and I thank you sincerely. You have much improved, the lady's face. Number three, Professor in Boots will do capitally. Number four, Sylvie and Beetle. As in the case of number two, I thank you sincerely for whatever alterations you have made. Number five, Bruno in Dead Mouse. That's just the kind of face I want for Bruno. It's roguish, which is what I mean him to be, and it's just the right age. Please keep as near this face as you can in other pictures. His body is a little too bulky for my taste. I remember writing once to urge that point on you, but it's years ago and you may have forgotten it. I haven't got a copy down here, but the effect of what I said and wish to repeat with regard to future pictures was, don't draw a podgy boy, a great eater of pudding, like the one on the left at page seven of Rump's by the Seaside, but give us a little acrobat, a boy that can run and jump. However, I don't mention that as constituting an objection to this picture. But there is a point I do and must object to in all these three pictures of Bruno, which I send you herewith. He is not dressed enough. From there being no sort of collar or even an edge to a garment indicated round the neck, the effect is one of nakedness to a great extent. This isn't a question of art, but of suitability to my book. I can't have partly naked figures. Could you not devise some fantastic kind of collar and belt for him? I don't suggest a Lord Fauntleroy sash for his fairy state, though I hope you'll give him one when he appears as a child, but I think some kind of belt would be a great improvement. While well, some kind of collar to indicate a top to the garment is absolutely necessary, I use your own word, you said you didn't object to necessary alterations. Another quite necessary alteration, or omission if you prefer it, is the group of flowers. You have drawn bluebells, which grow singly, not harebells, which grow five or six together along the lower side of a single stalk. The above is copied from Sowerby's botany. Your bluebells are very pretty, but if you look at the text, you'll see they don't suit it. Bruno can't run his hand along them, like a row of bells, unless he has a lot close together on one stalk. If, however, you'd rather not be bothered with more flower drawing, and I am very loath to bother you any more, I'll simply tell Swain to leave out the flowers. It will make quite a pretty little picture without them. If you do alter, easily done by adding a flap of paper to cover these flowers, and think it would look better to have more than a single spray of harebells, I'll strike out the words about there being only one spray of them within reach. The mouse is charming, but his tail looks to me in the air. You want it to look on the ground, don't you? Would a few touches of grass beyond the tail make it look more flat? I don't want another picture of Bruno playing on harebells. One is enough. Number six. (laughs) Warden, Sylvie, and Bruno, visiting professor, will do capitally. Sylvie is just delicious. Just the face and figure I want, and what a pretty pair of legs you've given her. Bruno, being back in the shadow, looks quite dressed enough. Number seven, Sylvie and Bruno and Mouse Lion. The Mouse Lion is a stroke of genius. Sylvie's legs look a little skin and bony, especially the left one. But I'm not sending it back for that, but for Bruno. (laughs) He is much too naked. Excuse my coarse language. I don't know how to put it more euphemistically. But a picture (laughs) exhibiting the naked posteriors, even of a very young boy, cannot possibly go into the book. Bruno's face is charming, Number eight, Sylvie and Bruno with mastiff. I'm delighted with the way you've managed the blunderbuss. I hadn't thought of that Dodge Sylvie is charming, but Bruno again is too puddingy, and he looks nearly naked. <laughs> Thanks for suggestion about Swain. I sent him all I could this morning and told him which would be wanted first. I'll erase Italian in description of Greyhound. Do just as you think best about crown and robes. By the way, don't forget about the correspondences I told you of between the fairy world and the real world. You may give a family likeness to Warden and Earl, Sylvian Lady Muriel, Professor and Mine Hare. But this belongs to Volume 2. Hoping very much that you won't be annoyed with this letter, I am. Very sincerely yours, C.L. Dodson. Okay. <laughs> oh, end quote. I'm sorry. I know I wouldn't be able to get through that without dying laughing. Oh my gosh, puddingy, puddingy. I'm gonna start using that instead of pudgy or or chubby. Puddingy. And just how upset he is about the the naked drawings. Oh, too funny. And just imagine this was all written by hand. That must have taken a long time. You may be thinking handwritten letters. Weren't typewriters invented yet? Could Lewis Carroll, the big famous author, afford one? The answer to both questions is yes. Typewriters became commercially available in the mid-1800s. And yes, he could indeed afford one and bought one. He had a Hammond brand typewriter that I actually got a chance to see. It was part of Charlie Lovett's Alice on Stage exhibit, which was part of the Alice 150 festivities in New York City in the fall of 2015. It would have been a little more exciting to see if, say... He had written Alice's Adventures in Wonderland on it. However, he did not even own the typewriter at that point. And once he did own it, he appears to have hardly ever used it. That same Charlie Lovett had a lengthy article about Lewis Carroll's typewriter in the winter-spring 1990 edition of the Jabberwocky, which is the Lewis Carroll Society of North America's newsletter. Charlie reports that Lewis Carroll only typed 15 letters out of the bazillions that he wrote, all in the first two years after buying it. So it seems that he considered it somewhat of a novelty. He actually typed out a few letters by request. A friend would say, hey, I want to get a typed letter. Can you write me a typed letter on your newfangled typewriter machine? And he would oblige. If you're wondering why he would take the time to write out his billions of letters even after he owned a typewriter, I can't answer that for certain. I can make an educated guess. The man was a creature of habit. He ate the same thing for lunch every day, for example. And he was obviously... Really into writing letters, so maybe he enjoyed the ceremony of taking out the pen and putting thoughts to paper by hand. Maybe not so much that letter I just read, but other personal letters relaying news and such. Now, he was a creature of habit, and he also loved gadgets. A love of anything new and mechanical was instilled in him by his uncle Skeffington, who we've mentioned before. Uncle Skeffington and his outstanding Victorian sounding name. So I can see him wanting to snatch up this new technology since he had some disposable income from his books, but then like so many treadmills and Fitbits and iPod Docs, it didn't get much use after just a short time. And Lewis Carroll was pretty quick when it came to writing by hand. He himself estimated that he wrote 20 words a minute, about 150 words per page, which works out to seven and a half minutes per written page. So he is pretty darn efficient, even without a typing machine. By the way, I neglected to mention that I got some of my information on Lewis Carroll's letter registry in that previous podcast episode from an article entitled An Early Database, Lewis Carroll's Letter Registry, written by Francine F. Abellis and published in the summer slash autumn 1990 Jabberwocky newsletter, because this is what I do with my spare time. I go to libraries and read 27-year-old issues of Lewis Carroll Society newsletters. I wish they were on microfiche so I could be super old school about it, but alas, they are not. I'm going to end today with a completely random, non Corolian note. While doing a little research on typewriters, I read that Ernest Hemingway would put his typewriter on a tall bookshelf and write while standing up. So what do you know? Hemingway pioneered the standing desks that are so trendy today. And I don't know why I find that so exciting. Maybe because I like to stand when I work. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you are enjoying the Alice's Everywhere podcast, please take a second to rate it five stars on iTunes, or maybe even write a brief glowing review. And of course, please subscribe if you haven't already. Talk soon.